Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This morning our text hinges on a very key and core doctrine of the Christian faith, but it's a, Christian, it's a doctrine of the faith that I believe is overlooked and neglected. The problem with the fact that this is overlooked and neglected is the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ is a foundational truth to our faith. John Murray said that nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. It really is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, but not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. I believe it's because of this centrality that Paul, at the end of chapter 3, uses it as the capstone of his argument. Remember, he's been arguing through chapter 3 why it's faith in Christ and not the nation of origin or the birth of origin or the, the Judaizers' Jewishness that made them children of Abraham. But it was their faith in Christ that made them heirs. So what we're going to do is we're going to very quickly survey what the New Testament teaches on union with Christ. And as we do, we're going to look and see how Paul applies it to the Galatian church, but also to us as a whole, and as believers now. So union with Christ, a survey of the New Testament teaching. A believer's union with Christ has its origins in the mind of God in eternity past. In Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, we are told that we have that we are told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Christ. It was in the eternal plan of God and decree of God to save a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, every tribe, peoples, and languages, and he purposed to do this in his son, Jesus Christ. There's mystery surrounding this truth, and we know that, and I know that, and we can't get around that, but there is the truth that believers are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it is from this union and from this eternal union that all of salvation flows. We are united in Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation. In other words, we can never think of redemption in abstraction from the mysterious arrangements of God's love and wisdom and grace by which Christ was united to his people and his people were united to him when he died upon the tree and rose again from the dead. We're chosen in Christ, but we're also made new in Christ. Ephesians 2 10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Everything about us in Christ becomes new. New desires, new affections, new priorities. Because of our union with Christ, we are changed from the inside out. This is not simply behavior modification. This is you and I in Christ becoming and being made new. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Is this very truth prophesied? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, that I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is not simply a new and improved you or a different and improved you. This is not a download that we get to fix certain flaws like we get in our phones every once in a while. This is a completely new operating system. This is switching from PC to Mac. (laughs) This is new. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. But so far we've been talking in this abstract way that in God's mind, somehow from the foundations of the world, we have been in Christ. But how is this actualized? How is this experienced? How does this union with Christ become reality in space and time? In Ephesians 2, we were told that there was a time that we have been alienated from God. And our union with Christ is realized through the effectual call of God by which we are drawn to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 9, he says, God, and Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this drawing begins with the new birth. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless you are born again, unless you are born of God from heaven, you can't see the kingdom of God. It is from this new birth, from this regeneration, that we have faith in Christ and we come to him in repentance. Paul says later in Ephesians 2, he says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That being made alive is the new birth that each and every one of us needs. That's the new birth wherein God puts the new heart within us, causes us to see his kingdom, causes us to see his need, our need of him, causes us to look at Christ, to see in Christ the only perfect Savior, the only way for us to enter into God's presence. We realize our need for a Savior and we see in Christ all that we need. And we are given the faith necessary to believe on Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we do, we are united to Christ experientially. We are adopted into the family of God, which brings us to our text specifically this morning. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is the implications of union with Christ. Now, if you go into Acts 17, there's a sense in which Paul, as he's arguing the Areopagus, 
tells the individuals and the men there that we are all God's offspring because we are made in the image of God. So yes, all humanity everywhere is the offspring of Christ in that we are of God, in that we owe our existence to him. But to be adopted as sons into the family of God is, is more intimate and more specific here in Galatians than what Paul is talking about in Acts. What Paul talks about here in Galatians is not simply all of humanity owing our existence to God, but it is about having God as your father in an intimate, loving way. It's only possible through faith in Christ. No longer is the believer alienated from God, fearing his judgments, but you are reconciled to God. You are reconciled to him, longing for his presence and his loving embrace. Having God as your father and seeing him as such is what allows us to view the difficult times that we go through, not as God's condemnation for sin, because we read in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But as God is your loving Heavenly Father, perfecting us through what Peter says, the testing genuineness of our faith, which our faith is more precious than gold, which put under enough heat will perish. But where faith is tested and may be found to result and praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is that reconciliation to God that you sense and that you feel and that you notice in our human relationships as we are welcomed back into the presence of a loved one that we've been separated from for a while, a loved one that we haven't seen for a while. Or maybe it's that relationship that's broken between you and a family member that at one point in time gets reconciled, that bringing back together again is what Christ does for us with God. We are separated from him naturally because of our sin. And it is in Christ Jesus, it's in the reconciling power that he has, that he brings us back together. (coughs) But more than just a view towards God, it puts all the believers in equal standing before God. If you remember the argument that Paul is fighting against, the Jewish believers in Galatia were telling the Gentile believers that they weren't quite up to snuff with God because they weren't Jews. That's the the basic tenet of what's going on. So they're saying, well, in order for you to become a true Christian, you really need to become a Jewish Christian. They're claiming that they're in a better position because they follow the Mosaic Law and they're circumcised. They had created within the church these divisions, different ranks of believers, different classes of Christians, which in Paul's mind is untenable because as Paul says in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To fully understand what Paul speaks about in 27, I want to go back all the way to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis 3. Remember in Genesis 3, we're introduced after God has placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and he has seen everything that he's made, and he pronounced it very good. God God places Adam in that garden to cultivate it, to take care of it, to subdue it, to fill and multiply, multiply and fill the earth. And all he told them to do was not to eat of one tree. 
In the very beginning of chapter 3, we are introduced to Satan disguised as a serpent. And through the twisting of God's words, he deceives Eve and causes her and Adam to eat of the one fruit that God had told them not to eat. And we read that the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloth. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For the Lord called the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself from you. Jumping over to 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Naturally, because of our sin, we are all in the same problem of Adam and Eve. We are naked and ashamed before God. There's nothing we can do about it, even though we try. Do you notice what Adam and Eve first did? They tried to cover over their shame and their nakedness by creating for themselves a covering. We all do the same thing. We try to justify ourselves by who we are, what we do, where we go to church. And we're realizing, and we try, and we try, and we try. And like Adam and Eve, it's insufficient. It doesn't cover over the nakedness and the shame that we feel. We try, and we try, and we try. But if you read Genesis 3.21, which is the last verse that I read, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It wasn't sufficient what Adam and Eve had done. Their own clothes that they made didn't work. They needed to be covered by God through the sacrifice and the death of something else and clothed. God needed to cover himself, cover them himself, and it required the shedding of blood. And we've all been in that same position ever since. We stand naked and ashamed before God, and we need Him to clothe us in the righteousness that is outside of us and comes to us only by the sacrifice of Christ. On putting on our putting on of Christ is our putting on of the garment that covers over our nakedness and shame, so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. You and I are adopted into into God's family on the merits of Christ and Christ alone. This is what the Judaizers in Galatia were struggling with. They thought they had some better standing before God because of their Jewishness. What they weren't recognizing is that they needed Christ's covering just as much as the Gentiles did. It wasn't because of what was in them, it wasn't because of what they've done, it wasn't because of who they were. And the exclusion from God's family wasn't because of who the Gentiles were. They didn't need to become Jewish to be in God's family. They needed, like we all need, Christ to clothe us. For false teachers to claim that in order to be acceptable to God, there was something these Gentile converts needed to do. This is not only a distortion of the gospel, but it displayed in them a flawed view of how anyone is accepted before God in the first place. And this makes Paul's statement in verse 28 pretty powerful because if you read it, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one. In Christ Jesus. 
Those three divisions were as powerful then as they are now. With that one verse, Paul strikes, strikes at the heart of what is happening in the church in Galatia. And that is pride. The Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles because they had circumcision. They were Abraham's offspring, and therefore they were the superior people group. We see the slave were free, the haves and the have-nots. We see the pride of being in one class with the other. And we see sometimes, unfortunately, the patriarchy that is in the battle of the sexes between men and women, where women are patronized, where they are pressed down because of their womanhood. In dealing with these issues, Timothy George writes, race, money, and sex are the primal powers in human life. No one of them is inherently evil. Rather, they are the stuff of which life itself is made. Yet each of these spheres of human creativity has become degraded and soiled through the perversity of sin. Nationality and ethnicity have been corrupted by pride, material blessings by greed, and sexuality by lust. Philip Rankin states, the greatest barriers to the harmony of humanity are ethnic, economic, and gender distinctions. But the Bible teaches that divisions of race Rank and gender can be only come, can be overcome only in Christ. They're overcome in Christ because God and the gospel creates a new humanity that becomes one in Christ Jesus. When we recognize that we are in the body of Christ because of Christ, it's not because of what we've done, but only because of what He's done. Those distinctions go away, but they don't go away in the sense that they're bulldozed on. There are still multi-ethnic people in our churches. There are still classes within our churches. There are still genders within our churches. But those worldly distinctions do not and cannot and should not determine our value within the body of Christ. Because we're only in the body of Christ because of Christ. The gospel doesn't ignore these distinctions and transcends them. Oneness in Christ is not a leveling and abolishing of all racial, social, or gender differences, but is an integration of just such differences into a common participation in Christ. They enhance rather than detract from the unity of the body and enrich the mutual interdependence and service of its members. In other words, it is a oneness because such differences cease to be a barrier and cause of pride or regret or embarrassment and become rather a means to display the diverse richness of God's creation and grace, both in the acceptance of the all and in the gifting of the each. Repeat that. Oneness in Christ is not a leveling and abolishing of all racial, social, or gender differences, but is an integration of just such differences into a common participation in Christ. They enhance rather than detract from the unity of the body. They enrich the mutual interdependence and service of its members. In other words, it is a oneness because such differences cease to be a barrier and cause of pride or regret or embarrassment 
and become rather a means to display the diverse richness of God's creation and grace, both in the acceptance of the all and in the gifting of the each. True unity amidst diversity displays the power of Christ because when Christ, when Christians are united across the lines that divide the rest of humanity, the watching world will take notice. They will want to know what is different about us, and we will able, be able to tell them it's Christ. We can't ignore the differences because there are differences. We have brothers and sisters of color who are experiencing racial tensions even today. And we can't ignore that. There are classes of individuals who are oppressed by those of wealthier means. And we can't ignore that. There are gender distinctions. There are differences in roles and responsibilities in the home and in the church. But that doesn't mean one sex is greater or lesser than the other. It doesn't detract from the oneness, but it enhances it. It displays the diverse richness of God's creation and grace in the acceptance of the all, regardless of race, of social class, or of gender. And it sees that, and it sees God working in the gifting of the each. Until we see that we are united in Christ, and that we press deeper and deeper and deeper into what that oneness means, unity amidst diversity in the church can be a struggle. We have a long way to go, here and in the world around us, and in the church around us, and the churches of global. I hate the, hearing the distinctions of the black church. Why can't we just be one church? Why can't we be a church? Christ unites us across the barriers that the world seeks to divide us all. And in verse 29, if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Because of our union with Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. If you remember back to verse 16 of chapter 3, we saw that when promises were made to Abraham, there was a very specific singular offspring that God was referring to. And it was Christ. By our putting on Christ by faith, we have become one with him, and therefore everything that God has promised to Christ becomes ours as well. It's in Christ we have the forgiveness of sins, we have heaven, we have eternal life. All of this is yours in Christ Jesus, regardless of who you are or what you've done. This distinction should not be an inhibitor for you to come to Christ. There's nothing you've done that should stop you from coming. Because as you see, there's nothing that we've done that God is here in the first place. If you are outside the body of Christ this morning, why? Come to Christ. He has offered you salvation. It's in front of you. He's died for your sins. Believe on him. And we will welcome you with open arms into his body. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for Christ. Father, we thank you for the union and the communion that we can share with Christ because of your plan to save the multitude of sinners and to bring them into Christ. Father, we thank you for the way that Christ transcends our differences. We thank you for the way that Christ brings us into God's family, that he reconciles us to you, but that he brings us back into a right relationship with our Father and our Creator. Father, we thank you for Christ's righteousness. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to come and to live a perfect and holy life. And then to die on the cross for sins that we've committed. But to do so that you could take and you could rise again three days later and you could give to your brothers and sisters the righteousness that we so need to be reconciled to God. Father, we thank you that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness and that when you look on us, you see him and you love us because of him. Father, we thank you that the requirement to come to Christ is to be a sinner. Father, that we can come to you with nothing. We don't need to be a certain race. We don't need to be a certain class. We don't need to be a certain gender. Father, we just need to be human to recognize our sin. And to see that we need Christ to forgive us. Lord, we thank you for when we do that, that we are accepted into Abraham's family, that we are accepted into the body of Christ, and we become heirs with Christ. Heirs to everything that you've promised. Heirs to eternal life that is only found in Christ. Heirs to a throne to be able to rule the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. And that you're going to give us everything. That you're going to restore this broken and fallen body, this broken and fallen world. You're going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and you're going to give it to us. All because of Christ. Father, help us this day as we move out into the world, as we leave this place, and we go back to our families, to our friends, and as we enter into the workplace tomorrow. Father, help us to see our identity in Christ and help us to see the people around us who need Christ and to know that we're accepted in your face because of Christ and that we can reach out from that position of acceptance and hold Christ high. Father, help us daily to press into you deeper and deeper. Father, impress upon us what our true identity is. Sons of God, brothers of Christ, and heirs to Christ in your kingdom. Be with us. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Sending your son Christ Jesus to die for us. We ask this in his name.